Making Media Tells a Story of Our Media Business Colossus. If you aren't familiar with our platform, make sure to check out joincolossus.com. There you'll find our latest episodes across each of our shows, the transcripts, supporting third-party materials, and even some written content as well. So whether you're an investor or an operator, we're out to create the content that we wish we had when we were in those exact roles. Invest like the best, business breakdowns, Web3 breakdowns, and founders each cover different angles of the ecosystem. And our special series like 50X and Return on India are targeting niche topics. Again, make sure to check out joincolossus.com for more on the platform. Let's do this. Welcome to Making Media. Humans are in an eternal quest for convenience. Save me time, make my life easier. My gosh, that was such a good start to an interview. Welcome back to Making Media. Our guest today is Peter Kafka. Now, if you've listened to media podcasts, you've likely listened to Peter's Recode Media. He's been a fixture in the industry for years, and he recently announced he's going back to Business Insider, which is notable because he was the first hire way back when it was known as Silicon Valley Insider in 2007. It was fun to have Peter on because we could pepper him with questions on media today. And given he's seen a few cycles, we tried to key in on what's actually new versus what's cyclical. And on a personal note, I always enjoy Peter's interviews because he's not just lobbing softballs out there to guests. And he'll keep going until he gets the answer or... He has exhausted all the possible questions that he can ask looking for that answer. So we didn't actually have to worry too much about leading questions or getting massaged answers. Peter gives his opinion, which we appreciate. So please enjoy this conversation with Peter Kafka. All right, Peter, we are excited to have you here. I must admit, when we look at your guest list that you've had on your podcast, it does feature many of the guests that we often talk about, hoping to have in the future. So we'll start out with the props to you on that. You have been instructing the industry and us for a very long time. We're excited to pick your brain. We're going to jump around a bunch. We're going to hit on media companies, media personalities, miscellaneous things like the world of podcasting. But I just wanted to start and get your perspective on media companies today. It feels like Every few years, things are changing in terms of what the ideal media business is. A few years ago, it was Disney and their IP and ESPN and everything that they held. feels like that shifted. Now it's Netflix. They've won the streaming wars. They have this stronghold on the industry. But if you were to design the perfect media business, what are the things that you would look for? And feel free to pull in some of the characteristics from existing businesses out there today to describe that perfect media business. I did not do homework for this. <laughs> Problem here is I'm just going to regurgitate conventional wisdom and conventional wisdom changes every few years. The Netflix was winning of a couple years ago was subscriber growth to the moon. And now the Netflix winning today after everyone was counting them out a year or two ago is, well, they have a lot of subs, but they're also profitable. So that's the new mantra. And I'm thinking about the places I work right now and and the place where I worked most recently at Vox Media. You're not going to get wowed here. It's can you have multiple revenue streams? If the ad business does shrink, can subscriptions buoy you? If you're going to be in an ad business, you need very targeted 
very specific audience or you need massive, massive reach. And there's kind of nothing in the middle. Again, that's not really new or that insightful. And that's kind of been there for a long time. I think people are re-educating themselves about that now. There is a limit to the number of things people are going to buy. So subscriptions can't be everyone's pivot. What I think a lot about too, I don't cover it that much, is the places where business models just simply don't work right now, and most specifically local news. And people will go back and forth on subs or ads or this. I just feel like there is not a for-profit business model that works in local news right now. And we have yet to face up to that. And I think that's different than a lot of the coverage right now of bigger media companies struggling because a lot of them are doing general entertainment or they're reaching a lot of people and their existence is not existential. Whereas I think being able to know what's happening in your community is a public good. On the local point, it is interesting because niche media seems to be very popular. And you mentioned the smaller you get, the more data that you have that's very specific. A lot of first party, individualized, segmented data is helpful if you're going to be niche. Local, in theory, would fall into that. Do you think that it's missing some characteristic besides having these incumbents where when you're trying to change a local media business that's been around for 100 years, that's obviously going to be tough? I think it's more basic than first party data, by the way. It's, is there a group of people that really want and need what you're making? A lot of the niche stuff we're talking about is generally business media often. It's not a coincidence that Puck and Punchbowl and Semaphore and Axios are all going after the same well-heeled Washington, New York, LA business consumer. I've said this forever, and I actually should Google it one day to see if it exists. There should be a media business that reaches people who love long-haired Persian cats. <laughs> it probably is. <laughs> And that could be an ad business. It could be a subscription business. The point is, it's a small number of people, but there's a lot of them in the world. And if they really care about their long-haired virgin cats, I'm imagining, you should be able to make a business out of that. The problem in local news is there are not enough people who are willing to pay one way or another for local news in their community. Prior to the internet, that was covered up because you had business models that bundled all that stuff together. And you had a monopoly on distribution. The internet blows all that up. And so a lot of what you used to be able to get from your local newspaper, you can now get from internet sources for free or low cost. A lot of it's better than what you were getting from your local paper. The one thing you can't get is the local news. And no one has figured out sustainably how to pay people to gather and edit and compile that information that you need, even if you don't know you need it. I'm willing to bet there's a successful Instagram account out there for long-haired Persian cats. And they're monetizing it in, in some way, but we need to find that and track it down. This is on a related point, particularly around the history. You've been covering the industry for a while. Is there a company that best tracks how media has changed in your view that you would say is like a good case study to study for people like us wanting to learn more about it? Netflix is pretty fascinating. Watching them pivot from discs to streaming. One of the very few examples of a company saying, this successful business we have now, we're going to move away from it. And I think that is the challenge you've seen almost every media business really grapple with. It's really hard. And media business, media company, media industry, whether that's recorded music, selling LPs and discs and really resisting streaming for a long time. You're watching the TV folks go through right now, still trying to keep the bundle intact some way when it's clear that's going away. 
And so to watch Netflix say, we're moving out of this business and we're moving towards this thing and it worked. I think it's interesting to figure out how they did it, why they did it, and very few other people did. I think one thing is they weren't really a legacy business. They were formed in the late 90s. Maybe it's as simple as it's easier to make that pivot when you haven't been entrenched as long, but everyone struggles with that. So they're pretty fascinating. And they're one that I have been tracking for a long time, both through happenstance, like I met Reed Hastings when I was a fact checker at Forbes, and executives would come to see people at Forbes because they wanted attention. And if you were a certain status of person, there was a townhouse owned by the Forbes family connected to the Forbes building, and they would take you up there for a very formal breakfast or lunch, and they would try to get advertising out of you, but they would also meet the editors, et cetera. Your status would determine who else you met. And all the way down was Reed Hastings couldn't find anyone else to talk to him. So I was at the lowest totem pole and talked to this weird guy selling discs. So I've known him for a long time. But also, I consciously decided around 2008 or so that I wanted to focus on video as a beat, in part because there was business, because there was tech, because you could see that the future was going to combine those things, because there was a lot of money in it, and because I knew that lots of people would care about it, even if you didn't care about specific players or their pricing strategies or whatever it was, you wanted to know why there was or wasn't a video on your screen. So I've consciously followed them for a lot of years for that reason. They have quite the heater going at the poker table with some of the pivots that they've made, started to do in-house content versus licensed. Early on, there was the risk with Blockbuster, but since then, they've really made the strategic moves that would make anybody blush. They're fully capable of screwing it up. Yes. <laughs> I don't understand their video game strategy at all, but the truth is that could go to zero. And I don't think Wall Street is giving them any credit for it anyway, so they could just turn around one day and say, eh, it didn't work. For years, I would interview Reed Hastings every couple of years on stage, or I'd see him get interviewed once a year on stage, and people would ask him all the same questions. When are you going to do ads? When are you going to do sports? No, no. And then the last couple of years, okay, we're doing both those things. So having the capacity to say we're completely changing this thing that we always said we were going to do is pretty interesting. When you think about Netflix, the business and the risks, just focusing on video a little bit, really focusing on the long form stuff. I don't think that YouTube gets nearly enough credit, maybe attention or respect, and maybe it doesn't warrant it. But as a threat to Netflix, Hollywood, anything... How credible do you think YouTube is as a threat? Do you think that more and more will happen on that platform? Do you think in the same way that things went directly to Netflix or we saw people like David Fincher working directly with Netflix, that will happen on YouTube in the future? I don't think so. I think that's not the threat that YouTube will pose and the threat that YouTube poses now. They're dramatically undercovered by my peers. And even still, when you talk to people in Hollywood, most people aren't spending time thinking about them. But if you know a kid, that's one of the major things they use to consume. I think there's some structural reasons why YouTube doesn't get covered so much. But anyway, it's a huge freaking business and doesn't get covered with as nearly as much seriousness as it should. I think they did $9 billion last quarter, top line. They've created a cable TV business just kind of on the fly. I'm not really sure what the point of it is, but they were just able to spin that up. And they're now the fourth largest cable TV provider, essentially, in the US. They'll probably be number three pretty soon. Just enormous power financially, enormous power culturally. And you can 
still see people not fully getting it. They kind of know what Mr. Beast is, but they don't really get it. And who watches it? They certainly don't understand the more niche stuff. And still today, bringing your show to YouTube is considered still a step down if you were on TV. They are different worlds. You don't see people graduating from YouTube to television. There's an attempt to do that every couple of years. It doesn't work. I think they're the same audience. I think kids are watching YouTube and they're watching TV, but they expect different things from those things. So I don't think that you're going to see movies on YouTube. I think YouTube wanted that for a while. That was their effort. And I think they have figured out over time that they're a completely different product. And that's fine and incredibly powerful. I think I heard Mr. Beast once saying that people always ask me when I'm going to graduate off YouTube. And like, you don't understand. YouTube is my destination. All the YouTube folks say that. As we say this, he's going to do an Amazon show. We'll see how that works. It's reasonably skeptical to go, I don't know that your YouTube audience is going to come find you on Amazon, but we'll see. Do you think just on the undercovered part for YouTube, a large piece of it is just because it's part of Google. If it was a standalone business, then media analysts, if you like, would be much better covered. I think it's some of that. There's a structural part about it. It's part of a business. You can't really fully see it. But I think also it's just harder to get your head around if you come to YouTube because it's so personalized, because it's so algorithmic. Now, you can say the same thing about TikTok and Instagram. Those things, for whatever reason, have gotten a lot more coverage recently. I think it's harder to understand what people are consuming. I'm assuming that in some ways YouTube wants it that way. Easier to have a bunch of stuff, but also... Mr. Beast is a huge star, but he's a tiny fraction of YouTube's audience. It's just a massive audience that everyone uses for everything, but for young people is a major staple of their diet. And I still think people have not figured that out. And when your podcast comes back to market, will that be on YouTube as well? Can we break that news? No. I mean, I think there will be some video, but it depends where it lands. Right now, it seems like you're supposed to put yourself on video for a podcast and I understand the reasons for it. I do know from the people who are doing it, it's totally unclear whether when it comes to like Instagram and TikTok clips, whether that is actually generating audience. And there is a cost to that. You do have to actually have someone operate the camera and make the video and all of that. Plus you have to look at my face. <laughs> I don't know. I've always appreciated the idea that podcast meant you and your guests don't have to get dressed. <laughs> and the listener. I think it'll be video second. You said it's something interesting there, which is you're supposed to. And it feels like a lot of content in the past 10 years has just adjusted to what you're supposed to do because those that are controlling distribution, whether it's Google with SEO or whether it's YouTube with the algorithm, even anything that's happening with podcasts, it's just you're trying to adjust because the control sits with these large players that control distribution. And maybe it's always been the case, but it feels different from... New York Times and Cable, where they really control things. And that was at least like a pure media entity. Am I overstating this massive shift where it seems like the dominant players have media as a associated business rather than the main thing is a pretty material shift in terms of how everything's being done? Some of the players are pure play media players. I think what you're talking about is the platform dependency. We need to do this because Google wants us to literally write our stories this way so they'll show up better in search. And I've been going through this since 2005 when I went to work at Forbes.com. And the most important person in our newsroom was not in editorial. She was part of the business side and she was in charge of getting Yahoo.com to put our stories on the homepage. And that was kind of it. Like if we didn't get on Yahoo's homepage and then there MSN and AOL lower below that. 
the story didn't move. And right now we're in a period where every media operator says, oh, we can't be dependent on the platforms anymore. We've gone through this way too many times. We were going to work with Facebook and Facebook literally paid us to make live video and they pivoted out of that and Facebook was going to partner with us and who knows. So everyone now says, oh, we have to own our own platforms. And that's my job right now at Business Insider is to write for the homepage audience specifically. And so everyone has a version of that that both sounds reasonable, probably a little too late to pick up on that for a lot of folks. Very hard to pull off for a lot of folks. It's one thing to say, you should come to our homepage. And the reality is most people aren't going to come to your homepage. They're going to find your content through a side door. They're still going to get it through a distributor. So you're going to have to live with some kind of dependency or codependency with a distributor. By the way, that existed in the old days. The cable networks needed the cable carriers to put them through. But it seems more acute now. Obviously, it's not like for like with streaming. But there feels like there's some similarities to where things were being licensed, then it decided that everybody was going to stream and not be dependent on others benefiting from streaming. Do we end up at the same result where three years from now, most people decide that was a bad idea to shift all of this focus towards making our website the destination or something along those lines? I mean, I don't know what their options are. That is the beauty, by the way, of the subscription model is you and the person who's giving you money have made an agreement that they like what you're making and you're going to make more of it and they're going to give you money to do it. And there's downsides to that, but that's a pretty virtuous cycle. There's always going to be fads in business thinking. And a lot of right now, the issue with streaming is that Wall Street now cares about profits and not growth. And that's pretty independent of the business models has as much to do with inflation rates and stuff. You can't really control for that. And there's also just a herd mentality and people do one thing because it's the other. And a year ago, two years ago, I was having earnest conversations about Web3 and what that meant. And no one knew, and, but you couldn't dismiss it because it was real. And now you would never talk about it again. So there's always going to be some thing that looks smart. I don't know if you've heard of AI. Yes. <laughs> In terms of the homepage problem that you referenced, and then subscriptions more generally kind of makes me think of the New York Times, which I guess has pulled both of those off to the best extent of any of the legacy media businesses. What are your reflections when you think about that business? And I know you've talked to all the important people there. What did they really get right that other people didn't? We were talking about Netflix making that pivot, and they pivoted from an ad-based business to a subscription-based business. One thing that's useful to think about with them is that that was a legacy company that really did have a model it was wedded to. It was a difficult change for them to make. And that they made it when they were in a real low point. In 2008, post the financial crisis, Great Recession, there were real smart people saying, I think the New York Times may be doomed. They were being provocative, but they were all saying it could go out of business. And it wasn't a crazy proposition to think about. They had to take a high interest loan to stay afloat. And I remember when they moved to the subscription model, there was a lot of internal worry that this wasn't going to work. A lot of the writers and editors I talked to worried that it wasn't going to work. So there was real doubt about it. It has worked, but they're kind of a one of one massive scale subscription model in news. I don't know how many other lessons we can take from it. It's not a straight line, I guess is what I'm saying. Is it some thing about the market being kind of winner take all at that scale and then everyone else has to fight for a niche? Or would that be the wrong takeaway? No, I think that's right. They are the only subscription mass market news product in the world, I think. Definitely in the US. The Wall Street Journal is second, I believe. But they're really targeting a business audience. 
and everything else is not even on the race course. Right? There's just no race. I can remember there was some uproar about the LA Times firing the LA Dodgers beat reporter, I believe it was recently. And to me, it was crazy that they even still had the beat reporter. Like it felt like it shouldn't necessarily be about LA. It should be about something bigger, but maybe that's just the times. Yeah, that's also just hard. They were still printing. I don't know if your audience will even know what this is, but agate sports. I'm from Minneapolis. I went a couple of years ago and saw that they were still doing that. My parents got the physical newspaper. They would have the sports scores and the box scores in print in the sports page. It seemed insane. It's all product that literally exists on the internet that you can get when you want. And there is an audience that is buying that paper because they want that thing in there and you still have to supply it. And you could say, we're not going to do that anymore. We're going to put our resources on something else. But that means those people who are still paying you are going to drop off and no one feels confident about doing that. In terms of some of the personalities, you've hosted some of these people, you witnessed some of these people that blend the two in terms of being media people and then owning media businesses. So I'll put Elon in there. I'll put someone like Bill Simmons in there, even a Portnoy. Is that the more common outcome here where in order to build something new, it does have to be attached to the individual? Are these going to be born out of just traditional business people hiring their content people again, ever? Is it cyclical or is that a secular change? It seems pretty cyclical to me because when I was going to work with Walt Mossberg and Kara Swisher, that was the model people were newly interested in. And then it turned out that uh, you couldn't scale businesses beyond a certain point now, but now there's renewed interest because of the Substack world and influencers in general. And you see people trying to figure out ways to scale it again. That's what Puck is trying to do. Bill Simmons built a business around himself. Dave Portnoy built a business around himself. Howard Stern built a business around himself. So you can do it. I think you're naturally capped at a certain size. Doesn't mean you can't build fantastically profitable and interesting businesses. When you look forwards, the two massive things at the moment that seems to be everywhere is both AI and also VR and particularly Apple Vision Pro and the headsets and all this debate going on. From your seat, which one captivates you more when you think about how it will impact the media business model and just media more generally? Well, AI is here now, so it's absolutely having an effect now, and it's mostly bad. It's made low-cost, shitty content zero cost. It's still shitty. It's a tragedy of the commons. Google was always struggling to sort what was good and what wasn't, and now there's just so much crap. I mean, it was all inevitable. You could see how this would happen. Maybe Google will have a vested interest in cleaning that stuff up. It's unregulated worldwide. There's no cost to anyone to making bad, crappy content, and just as alarmingly, good enough content. If you're making content, you're competing with people who are doing bad stuff for free. They're doing stuff that's a C plus 80% version of what you're doing for almost no cost. That's enormously difficult to compete in that marketplace. And the positive spin, everyone I interview says, oh, this is going to allow us to do more productivity. That's all true. It's going to put people out of work. I just did another interview with the guy who runs Runway ML. This is a video effects text-to-video company based in New York. He's pretty interesting. Their big claim to fame right now is that the people who did everything everywhere all at once used them and allowed them to take a micro-budget movie and make it look like there was real money in it. So that's super cool. That's the positive version of it. But even that positive version of the story means 
there's people who do that special effects work manually. It's really difficult, very low paying. It's very difficult to run those businesses to begin with. And now they're going to be put out of work by the robots. So it is literally double-edged. You can go round and round. When I started working at Forbes magazine, there were two rooms of people who did proofreading and copy editing. They lived like troll people in the dark. <laughs> and one of them would look at copy in computer form, and another group literally looked at the printed pages with pencils, and they would go over and make little changes. Those were crappy jobs. And those jobs don't exist anymore and probably have more typos in the world, frankly. But you wouldn't want to say, well, we, those jobs must be capped and we can't have Grammarly and Microsoft Word spell check. We want those things in our life. We want to keep them. But anyway, it's pretty gnarly. The VR stuff, I get why it can be cool. I'm just personally not interested in putting stuff on my face. And I think most people aren't. And that's the thing I keep thinking about is how 3D movies and 3D TV did not take off. And it could be just that the good part of the experience just simply wasn't mind-blowing enough to have people deal with putting on glasses. My kids and I went to see Avatar 2 in IMAX 3D. And we left halfway through, in part because it's just a boring movie. An hour and a half in, we're like, we've seen enough of it. But also, it's just unpleasant. And those are lightweight glasses. Again, not a mind-blowing prediction, but I think those things have to get to that weight and form factor before they can take off. And it seems like, technically, we're just a long way from that. I need to ask this because you brought up Avatar 2. I've had this hypothesis, but I've never known the right person to ask, and you might actually be it. Has anyone ever audited James Cameron's box office numbers? Because he holds these claims, but most of the people that I talk to have not seen those movies. They might have seen Oppenheimer or Top Gun, but I find it very bizarre. And you might actually understand this. <laughs> Thank you for validating me because I have an ongoing fight with Matthew Ball, the investor and analyst. No one saw Avatar. He goes, well, no, clearly they did. Here's the box office numbers. I'm like, no one saw it. Or if they did, they were memory wiped. Or maybe like they do for New York Times bestseller list, they bought bulk seats because I've literally never had a discussion about Avatar 2 ever. I've never heard it. I've never seen a meme about it. It's fucking wild that that many people could buy tickets to something and have so little cultural impact. It's bizarro. And if I was betting, I'd say that doesn't augur well for Avatar 3, because presumably people who went to see Avatar 2 had gone to Avatar 1 and like, all right, I'll do it again. I don't see them coming back for Avatar 3, but maybe I'm wrong. You wait for those numbers to hit. I know with the original, he would re-release it in theaters to get back to number one. And I did wonder if maybe he was buying some bulk seats, donating to the charities so that everybody can go back in. It's wild. It is really difficult to make something that big and have no impact. And again, I understand it's a big world and there's lots of culture and subculture that I'm not seeing, but I'm looking for it, man. I have never seen it. Dom, have you ever had or <laughs> overheard an Avatar 2 discussion? No, although I was made to watch it for my wife's birthday. So I have seen it, but I wouldn't be able to tell you what happened. Did I miss something in the second half that I should go back and rewatch? <laughs> no, not in my memory anyway. All right, good. <laughs> we'll give you a rerun last time on Avatar 2 before you see 3, if you choose to go in that direction. It brings up a good point, And I think you've pointed this out before. You mentioned it in relation to down the middle news. No matter what, there's really not that many people looking for down the middle news. And sometimes I think that the media can 
misperceive what people actually care about. You've actually had a few instances where you've mentioned this across interviews. How much do you think that the pulse of what we hear from media actually matches the reality? And I'm not getting into like the mainstream media brainwash thing. You've referenced with Bill Simmons, they're covering shows like Succession, which aren't really that huge relative to something like Big Bang Theory. And there's this disconnect. And how rampant do you think that is across the industry? I think it's pretty common. I mean, I think that's cable news in general. Oh, Fox News, this very small audiences for Fox News and any cable news. And Fox News is the biggest, but it's just not that many people watching the show on any given night and watching their broadcast on any given night. But you can get that audience that cares about it to come back. So you program for it. And then your worldview becomes skewed by audience capture is the fancy way of saying it. So you're programming for that audience. It's not a bad thing, by the way, because it just means you're running a successful business. The New York Times version of that is, oh, it's older, liberal, rich people are the New York Times core audience. And so that is who they're writing for by default, whether or not they're thinking about that. If you listen to Bill Simmons, you think everyone loves NBA basketball. They don't. He loves it. And the audience that cares about NBA basketball listens to him. And that's what they make. Their culture shows, same thing. They don't even pretend to like cover Big Bang Theory or I think they're doing a little bit of Yellowstone. I think it's fine. Like make the stuff you care about that reaches an audience like we've been talking about from the beginning of the show. I don't think that's the worst thing. But when you're consuming that stuff, when you're making that stuff, you're putting on blinders intentionally. You're just missing stuff. Did you actually not think that Netflix would benefit from spreading out the release of some of their shows so they could have more cultural moments? You challenged him on that. I am curious your actual opinion. I wasn't sure if you were just jabbing. I listen to a lot of Ringer content, so <laughs> I'm part of the problem slash solution. But there's a lot of like, oh, the discourse says this, the discourse says that. They're talking about a narrow slice of people. It starts with them. I asked also Bill Simmons about paying attention to metrics, and he acted as if that was something I never did. I'm like, of course you do. But it'd be weird if you weren't. You have to. Netflix, again, they said they weren't going to do ads. They're doing ads. They said they weren't going to do sports. They're doing sports. If they thought that spreading out the release was helpful for them, they'd be doing it. When Netflix lost a million subscribers in 2022, and everyone was predicting their doom, all of the prescriptions that everyone was offering were just become a traditional Hollywood company. Just do what we do in Hollywood already. Go do that. And for the most part, Netflix says, screw it, we're not going to do that. And they seem to be right. I've always appreciated in your conversations how you push back on your guests. It's not something you see too often in the podcasting world. Curious for your reflections on podcasting more generally. The thing you hear at the moment all the time from particularly my corner of the world is that we're so early in podcasting. And maybe we are, but I'm curious for someone who's been doing it for longer than most people, where you think we are in the medium. We started doing podcasting 2015, 2016. I thought we were late because I've been listening to Bill Simmons, listening to Adam Carolla whoever the early podcasters were. At that time, a lot of the tech VCs and tech people had spun up their own podcasts. I thought it's pretty late, but why don't we try it anyway? It turns out we were early. We're early in terms of, I think the overall podcast audience will continue to grow. You can debate the growth rate and what kind of things are going to work and are we going to create new formats? It's always interesting to think about when television showed up, they didn't have words to describe it because no one knew what television was. And so the original television programming was just radio plays. New mediums create new formats. I think we're still figuring out what that's going to be. The business of podcasting is obviously going to evolve over time. 
so that's why even I'm still doing it, even though the podcast economics have retreated. I do think the idea of a podcasting bubble is pretty funny because it's a pretty small bubble compared to bubbles. <laughs> it's tiny. It's like a billion dollars from Spotify and a few hundred million from others. And then media organizations were trying it and they don't have much money to begin with. So to them, those look like big expenditures. But the truth is the show you guys are making costs somewhere between zero and five dollars for you to make. There'll be audiences. Some of these things will never make money in any significant way. Some of them will make money somehow. I do think that there is something particular about the podcasting format. Audiences really appreciate the personal connection. It means something to them. It definitely means something to me, the people I listen to. It's why I'm spending money on two podcasts that are free just because I like the creators and want them to make more. There's a lot of self-satisfied people saying, oh, I told you podcasting was a fad, but I don't think it's a fad. It's not the earliest days. We've been doing it for a while, but I just think there's going to be some sort of equilibrium between cost and market and revenue that we're going to figure out. One of the biggest surprises to me is who is listening and then how much you hear from them. And the caliber of person, everybody's equal in some senses, but important people listening that will then follow up with you. That is a huge benefit to me. It's hard to put value on that. You're not going to do that forever but it opens doors. It does a lot of things. For you, been in media for a while, different mediums, writing versus that. Is that a noticeable thing? And do you put much value on that? There's definitely people that you want to talk to that don't want to do a podcast. That's fine. It's a reasonable... Typically, the best stuff comes out. It's really frustrating. It's one of the reasons I often think about the limits of what I do journalistically in podcasting, because the best case scenario is you have someone who's candid and forthcoming and telling you, an engaging story. It's still only their version of the story. And one way of doing responsible journalism is to synthesize a bunch of different perspectives and try to put forward your own. News versus entertainment's a strain. And then I also think about the fact that that person has a heavy accent. It's going to be difficult to have a conversation with them. You end up with a narrower slice of the world than I do, than I would like. And same thing with the conference business. Who is good on stage? Who's willing to come on stage? Who wants to come on stage but sucks? All of those mean that you're not holding up a mirror to society. You're holding up a pinhole kaleidoscope thingy. When you approach an interview at a conference on stage versus a podcast interview, do you approach them differently or exactly the same? On a stage, they are performing for an audience. Sometimes they're very cognizant of that and they will play to the audience and that can be great. Sometimes I find that on stage, it's much harder to ask someone a difficult question because they can just filibuster an answer. I used to ask people the same question over and over if they weren't answering, and now I'll do it maybe twice. I do feel like podcasting format, because you're taking the audience out of it, it allows for the possibility of a deeper conversation. I don't mind having an awkward pause, too. I'm more apt to ask the person the question a second or third time on a podcast than live. And the flip side is live can have electricity and all of that. They're also pretty similar in the end. Do you have this style, which I really enjoy, where, as you say, you'll push back or you'll ask the same question. Have you had many instances where they lose it or give you even less as the conversation goes on? Jim Everett moments. Yeah. Yeah, no, I've not been attacked on stage. <laughs> I did an interview with Vince McMahon. I did a wrestling story for Forbes years ago. And wrestling was at one of its peaks. And at the same time, he had publicly acknowledged that he was doing steroids. My story was about the economics of wrestling. And he obviously was not ready for me to ask him about 
how it worked and how the money was distributed to the talent. And I remember thinking that he really might hit me, but he didn't. And his daughter gave me a ride to the Amtrak. It was great. It's rare that you find someone, especially running a company who hasn't been coached or prepped in some way. The tension of this kind of work is you want people who are interesting and tell good stories, but you don't want them to be overly polished and scripted. It's the book tour issue too. You get somebody on those and how different is the conversation going to be? With WWE, to me, this is another interesting one, putting aside Vince's issues over the years. They actually seem like they were way ahead of the curve on a few of the media things. They started their own streaming service very early on, did some creative stuff, then got out of the streaming business, what seemed like at the top, did licensing deals. Why doesn't it get talked about in more of the iconic case study status? It is a weird company. (laughs) 100%. (laughs) Yes. For starters. And there was definitely like, oh, they're pioneers in streaming. But then it turned out they couldn't make that streaming business work. They were basically doing their own Netflix for a while because it's wrestling. It's not football. Maybe I overstated their success on the streaming side of things. By the way, I'm shocked that Bill Simmons spends as much time talking about wrestling as he does. (laughs) And I felt very vindicated. He did an interview with Larry David. Larry David said, what what are you doing? That's great. It's fake. Doesn't everybody know? Yeah, it's always good when the tables get turned on those things. I'm doing a little bit of a roundtable here. But another media role that I think is interesting, but I'm not sure what place it still has. And I'll use Casey Blois from HBO as the poster child for somebody who seems to have a magic touch with curating great content, great series, or at least he has the reputation for doing that. How much does that role matter in the future? It's even hard to quantify whether that's a real skill or not. But when you think about someone like that, you know him, you've spoken to him. HBO always had this reputation, but does that matter as much in the future? Yeah, HBO may be one-on-one there because those people, they kind of exist in other movie studios, but they're certainly not name brands. The music business, none of the people who are running the big labels are musicians, or if they are musicians, it's not relevant to what they do. And none of them are guys who like went to the club and found the next Rihanna. They have people below them who are doing that, and their job is to crunch the numbers. And Casey Bloys has to report up to David Zaslav. And David Zaslav has made the mistake of trying to present himself as like, I love content. I love Hollywood. And everyone's like, Hollywood said, no, we don't like you. <laughs> it's a whole different story. Because before Casey Bloys was Richard Plepler, even when Casey Bloys was the guy doing the work, Richard Plepler was the guy who got the reputation for being artist friendly and having great touch. It may just be that that's just HBO, because there isn't really a comparable product. I do think there are still a lot of creative leaders at various companies that really excel and the product works starting with them. So New York Magazine, owned by Vox Media, my former employer, was run by Adam Moss for a long time. The idea of magazine celebrity editors, that was a big thing. That era is gone. Anna Wintour and David Remnick, Anna's running all of Condé, but really she's Vogue kind of the last two remnants of that. Adam Moss ran New York Magazine, did a really good job of it. He was one of those well-known, beloved guys. David Haskell came in. Now I'm no longer employed by Fox Media, so I don't have to worry about kissing up. But I just think he does an amazing (laughs) job at creating a product that's aimed at New York, but also has a national imprint that has real investigative journalism, really smart culture stuff, has the ability to create 
cultural memes, Nepo Baby, that's them. They've done a bunch of that stuff. And that's David and the team he has put in around him. And I think those exist in other media companies as well. I'll call them gatekeepers as well, even though I was focused on their taste and what they can do. Are they any less powerful today? And does the algorithm hurt that at all where you want to be big, you're not really focused on impressing them, you're focused on impressing an algo and hopefully getting picked up? Do you think that's too dystopian of me to say that? A less charged way of saying is success is much easier to measure in a lot of ways than it used to be. There's a lot of stuff where you go, yeah, it must be working. And no one ever looked too closely at what the numbers were. And now the numbers are front and center. And Ted Sarandos cannot come back to Netflix shareholders year after year and saying, I know it looks like no one's watching our shows, but we really have done some amazing quality work here. It's all out in the open. And, and that's one of the stressors you hear from Hollywood with Netflix. Like, oh, they're too mainstream. Their taste isn't good. The audience likes what they're making is the retort to that. This has been an awesome conversation. We are excited for you to go off hiatus, come back with the podcast. Any idea of when that's going to be? I think I should have some news sooner than later. How's that for a non-answer? You've been in media, I can tell. Yeah. <laughs> this has been fun, Peter. Thank you for sharing the knowledge. And everybody, if you haven't checked out Peter's podcast, please do it. Lots of good stuff in the archives. Yeah, when it's available. Thank you. See ya. I like the fact that he doesn't like your favorite film, The Killer. I know I'm out of consensus. That's fine. <laughs> I will hold my opinion strong. You're on that block, are you? Absolutely. We actually got through quite a bit of movie content there. Like the Avatar discussion. Splice that up, put that on Twitter. Let the world see it. I think I remember him having this back and forth with Matthew Ball. <laughs> I hate when I can't reference those things, but I am with him. Their conspiracy, Matt, is saying there's something going on there. Juicing the numbers. I should probably be careful of what I look for, but something tells me. Some funny business happening in the box office numbers. Maybe that's why he lives in a dark corner of New Zealand somewhere, as far away as possible from everyone. We're going to find out. There's a bunch of theaters there. He <laughs> yeah. just replays it, and the ticket sales. I guess there's the numbers, though. Someone has to fund the ticket sales. This would be a great investigative journalism report, so maybe I'll do it. Yeah, we can down tools on the podcast. There's no benefit to me going at Cameron. He makes some good stuff. If my wife's listening to this, which she probably won't be, but I'd like to clarify, I did actually enjoy our evening watching the film. It was not a bad film. I didn't come away thinking, oh, that was a waste of time. It's just long, and I have an issue with long films. It was good enough. I love Peter because, as advertised, he challenges his guests when he's a host, and he's not afraid of sharing takes, having opinions. He was talking about who makes for good podcast guests and who's for bad. He, he has designed himself as a very good podcast guest, I would say. We kind of knew that coming in because when he's hosting people as well, like we talked about, he's not afraid to challenge them and they'll say something. He'll be like, but that's obvious, isn't it? Or he'll say something like, are you sure? Which I really appreciate. I don't think there's enough of that. Maybe we're part of the problem, but I always enjoy listening to his podcast. I was saying this to you before we spoke to Peter. In some ways, his podcast has done what we're trying to do. He's talked to all the people in the media world that you'd want to have on a podcast. There are slightly different angles to what we do and what he does. It's almost like a little cheat sheet for us to talk to him, get all the lessons from all the people that he's interviewed, and then share them with you all. I would say he does have a list that makes me jealous. <laughs> I'll get that. Don't worry. We could challenge guests more if we do it. I think we tend to cut those parts. <laughs> and I probably do it maybe more than you. I'm definitely not the good one on that side of things. But no, it was a pleasant conversation. I could 
ask him a bunch of questions. Most of them would probably have to be off the record, but a ton of questions that I could ask him about. I think he's right about YouTube, just not getting enough coverage. I was interested to hear that he doesn't think it'll ever really be a direct competitor or comp for Hollywood and Netflix and stuff. But it was interesting to hear. And this is like back in the investing world as well. People wouldn't cover a stock because the way that they thought it worked just didn't fit the model. Whereas the reality of how the kids on Snapchat, 45-year-old portfolio manager has no idea how Snapchat is actually used. And that's probably a really bad example. But that thinking of, oh, I don't use it, so it can't be good. And there must be some element of that as well. That was like the overstock.com or like eBay for a period of time where coastal elites could never imagine using those websites to buy anything. But the same people that are watching the Big Bang Theory are using those. And that's actually a very large percentage of the world or of the US at the very least. I think you're right on that. It was a fun one. Are you a Big Bang Theory fan? No. That's strong. Not a sitcom guy. At all? Yeah. Friends? No. <laughs> wow. <laughs> is this just a bit or is this real life? It's all real life. There are no <laughs> bits. My point more being, I'm wondering whether you say that because you don't want to be part of the popular crowd. It's a stance you're taking, not because of the content, but because of... Oh, because I'm trying to be contrarian? Where it puts you. Yeah. I love sports. <laughs> I love football. You pick and choose your battles. Some things I like that everybody likes, other things I like that nobody likes. Fair enough. And that's fine. You're entitled to those opinions as well. Yeah. Why, sitcom person over there? I actually haven't watched The Big Bang Theory for a long time. I think it's stopped, isn't it? But I did go through a phase. You did watch it? Yeah, I watched a lot of it. I really enjoyed it. <laughs> you really enjoyed it? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Are you not allowed to say that? <laughs> Is that stereotype me as a certain type of person? I just want this <laughs> recording. <laughs> you have to send it over. You can't edit this. I just need to have it. Whether or not this part, you're willing to have it go live. I am definitely getting access to this. That's all I'm going to say. I'll leave it there. <laughs> you know, when you're the part of the joke, but you're not quite sure what the joke is. That's exactly what's happening here. Can't comment. But I can see it written on your face. No comment. <laughs> no comment at all. All right. Bring it back to Peter. I thoroughly enjoyed that. It was very pleasant to talk to you. I don't have a lot to add. I think Peter, his conversation covered the most of it. Yeah, this debrief was beneficial for a few reasons, but not most of them related to Peter. So, yeah, we're good. Yeah, I think we can just shut this down and burn the floppy disk or whatever this is on. And I'll see you all next week. Or maybe I'll wait. Amen. I don't know. I'll be somewhere else. <laughs> all right. Later, team. Later, team.